welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is Episode 67, Two-Year Randomized Controlled Trial of Belimumab in Lupus Nephritis. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on September 17th by Richard Fury et al. All right, we have another day, another lupus trial, another set of in-point shenanigans. Man, am I excited to talk about these again. So for background, belimumab is well known to us by now because it's been a treatment for lupus nephritis since the original BLISS trials many years ago. Belimumab is a monoclonal antibody that inhibits B-cell activating factor, or BAF. Now, the original trials, BLISS-52 and BLISS-76, established that it did something for lupus, but those trials unfortunately did not include patients who had active, severe lupus nephritis. Consequently, none of us never really knew whether we should be offering belimumab to such patients. Thankfully, we now have this trial, and we can kind of have a better idea of it. Now, this was a phase 3, multi-centered, double-blind, placebo-controlled, 104-week trial. To get into the trial, you had to have antibody-positive lupus nephritis, you had to meet the 1997 classification criteria, and then you had to have a number of markers of renal disease. The main thing is that you had to have a urinary protein-to-creatinine ratio, I'm going to call that a P-to-C ratio from now on, of 1, and biopsy-proven lupus nephritis. Now, there are a number of flavors of lupus nephritis. So to get into this trial, you could have class 3, which is focal lupus nephritis. You could have class 4, which is diffuse nephritis, with or without class 5, which is membranous. And you could have pure class 5 nephritis, provided that you had it within 6 months before or during screening. Only patients with active lesions were included, which I think is fair. If I see patients with chronic disease and no activity, I tend not to treat that aggressively. So reasonable inclusion criteria. I am less enthusiastic about the exclusion criteria. You could not get into this trial if you had received dialysis within one year, if you had an EGFR of less than 30 milliliters per minute, or if you had failed both cytoxin and mycophenolite. What does that do? Well, we've gotten rid of patients who had bad disease, who had persistent disease, and people who had refractory disease. So this is a trial essentially of patients who present with lupus nephritis and have not terribly scary lupus nephritis. I really wish they had included people with a little more of a refractory presentation because those are the patients for whom I'm going to be looking to add another therapy. This also has important consequences for what happened to these people as the trial progressed, which I'll get into in a little bit. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to either belimumab IV or a matching placebo. Standard induction therapy, which was either IV cyclophosphamide, I'm going to call that cytoxin, or mycophenolate mofetil, I'm going to call that MMF, were chosen at the discretion of the treating physician. This is not a problem for randomization because in theory, randomization would happen separate from this and would not be influenced by this choice. It is a problem if after the trial is concluded, as many people are wont to do, you go back and try and look at differences between cyclophosphamide and MMF. The problem here, of course, is that they weren't randomized to MMF or cytoxin. Most likely there are some selection effects there, which probably resulted in a healthier cohort getting MMF. So, you know, be cautious when comparing those two. High-dose glucocorticoids were given at the discretion of the investigator, and they were tapered over time with a goal of less than 10 milligrams by week 24, and not to exceed that dose through week 104, with a number of kind of funky times when you could or could not exceed them. Not terribly important. What was terribly important was the fact that they have yet again changed their original primary endpoint midway through the trial. The original primary endpoint was the ordinal renal response. 
So you could have complete, partial, or no response at week 104 based on the original primary endpoint. There are a whole lot of wonky cutoffs for what means what with this ordinal response, but I'll tell you that in short, to have a complete response, you had to have essentially a good GFR, no sediment, no failure of therapy requiring rescue therapy, and your protein-creatinine ratio had to be under 0.5. A partial renal response was not quite that, but not a failure, and if you met neither of those, then you were considered a non-responder. I don't see anything that's terribly unreasonable about this outcome measure. The investigators decided that this was a problem. And at some point in the trial, they decided to change it. The new primary outcome measure was the primary efficacy renal response. This was, frankly, not that different. You had to have urinary protein-creatinine ratio of 0.7 or less, an EGFR that was no worse than 20% of below the pre-flare value, and no use of rescue therapy for treatment failure. Fine, I'm okay with that new outcome measure, but I'm not really okay with people changing outcome measures for trials unless there's a very compelling reason to do it. To explain that, let me first explain why it is so important to pick a primary outcome measure and keep it. Now, the scientific process is relatively straightforward. You have a theory, you develop a hypothesis, you test that hypothesis, and then you develop a new theory from it. Randomized controlled trials are, in a sense, one of the purest forms of science. You have a specific theory, you develop a very specific hypothesis. In this case, it was that belimumab would result in an 80% power to detect X percentage point difference in their ordinal resp renal response measure. Crucially, we didn't just say, this is a therapy that will do something. That's not a testable hypothesis because something can be a lot of things. If we're allowed to change the primary outcome measure, then we're really degrading the very science behind the trial itself. All trials assess dozens, if not hundreds, of potential outcome measures that you can mix and mash. And when you're already using a composite measure that is mixed and mashed together, the potential to just create an answer out of thin air based on essentially statistical noise uh, goes up for every time you monkey around with these primary outcome measures. The fact that here they dropped one small part of the outcome measure and didn't change it very much is at face value somewhat suspicious. Note that I said suspicious and not necessarily problematic. In the recently published TULIP trials, they also did this. If you read the manuscript, they emphasized very clearly that they did not do this before seeing the data. This is important because as long as you haven't seen the data, theoretically you can change it up a little bit without really harming the science itself. In this manuscript, neither the primary manuscript nor the supplementary appendix gave us any similar assurances. I am assuming that they didn't change this after becoming aware of some of the data, but they haven't told me that yet, and I would really like to hear it. Compounding this, there was an editorial that was written in the New England Journal of Medicine that discussed this trial. They said, and I quote, a change in the primary endpoint may be acceptable if critical new information surfaces that affects the usefulness of the original endpoint, but it is important to know whether the decision to change the endpoint was independent of any data collected before the change, end quote. I agree. It would be important to know that. Why have the authors not told us that? And why did the editorialist who wrote an editorial in the New England Journal and emphasized the importance of this also not tell us that? At some point, you should say outright, we didn't see the data before we made this change. More on that later, but let's keep moving. The primary endpoint was analyzed in a modified intention to treat population, which is good. Patients from sites with compliance issues were excluded. I didn't totally know what to make of that. It's a little bizarre. And more importantly, patients who withdrew from the trial were considered to not have had a response. Why does this bother me? Well, we know that belimumab does do something for lupus. It appears to make people feel a little bit better and makes them more likely to taper steroids. 
I could imagine a world where paper, people who got belimumab were less likely to withdraw from the trial and therefore less likely to have been considered having a response. That could have been independent from the effects on their kidneys. Ultimately, this wound up not being a big issue, but just to note that it theoretically could have been. Who got into this trial? Well, it's pretty interesting. As expected, almost 90% of the patients were female. 50% were Asian. Only 17% of these patients were actually from the United States or Canada, which has some relevance for physicians like myself in the United States and Canada. In previous trials, there was some controversy over the impact of blimimab on black patients. Uh, in this trial, only 14% were black, which is not nearly enough to actually answer the, the relevant questions. But at the end of the day, it's really hard to get enough of every subgroup to make reasonable conclusions, so you can't totally fault them for that. Most patients had three or four nephritis, that's 60%, and 40% had a P2C ratio of over three. Estimated GFR was not that bad for patients in this trial. Fully 60% of patients had an EGFR over 90, or essentially normal. Only 70% of patients in this trial were receiving an antimalarial therapy. That seems low to me. Certainly in clinical practice, not everyone is on these drugs because some people have intolerance, some people develop side effects, but 70% still seems a little bit on the low side and makes me a little bit uncomfortable. With that, let's get to the results. With regard to the new primary endpoint, the primary efficacy renal response, 43% in the belimumab group and 32% in the placebo group met the primary endpoint. That was statistically significant with a number needed to treat of about 9 if you treat nine patients with belimumab, one of them will reach this primary efficacy renal response at two years. That's something. That's not a really large number. At week 52, which was not the primary endpoint, but it's reasonable to ask, did this happen earlier as well? The numbers were about the same. 47% in the belimumab group versus 35% in the placebo group. So a number needed to treat of about eight patients to get the primary renal response at one year. The results of the analysis incorporating the original primary endpoint are not provided in the manuscript. In order to find it, you have to scroll all the way down to page 13 of the supplemental appendix, and you will find that the original primary endpoint was not statistically significantly different. If you remember when I talked about the TULIP2 trial, they changed their primary endpoint, but ironically, they didn't need to, because the primary endpoint that was original and the primary endpoint that was changed were both statistically significantly different, which makes me feel like nothing really nefarious happened there. If you're already a little bit suspicious about why an action was taken, because they haven't assured you that this was done before on blinding, then the fact that they didn't hit on their original endpoint makes you even more suspicious. I should also note that the primary endpoint is just not the kind of endpoint that I like to see. When patients have lupus nephritis, what do I tell them? I say, the goal here is to try to protect your kidneys. I don't want you to go on dialysis. I don't want you to develop chronic kidney disease. I want to try to keep you living your normal life as best as I possibly can. I don't tell you that my goal is to target a bunch of random numbers that come out of your kidneys in the hopes that those random numbers continue to look not too bad. Helpfully, they did have another endpoint, which was the probability of what they called a renal-related event or death. Now we're talking. I want to know about renal-related events or death. In figure two, you can see panel A, there's a beautiful Kaplan-Meier curve that shows exactly this, and there's a pretty impressive difference between them. The numbers themselves were a hazard ratio of 0.51, which was statistically significant over time. That's actually pretty interesting because I care about death, but let's parse this a little bit further. If you look at that figure two a little more closely, you'll notice that this was entirely driven by increased proteinuria, impaired kidney function, or both. 
There was one death from any cause in the bulimumab group and two deaths from any cause in the placebo group. That was certainly not the thing that drove this outcome measure. Progression to end-stage renal disease, 0 and 1. Doubling of creatinine level from base, baseline, 1 and 1. At the end of the day, this outcome measure was driven by exactly the same things that drove the primary outcome measure. This doesn't actually improve my interpretation of this trial or give me any new information. Instead, it restates the results that we already know, tax the word death on the end, to imply that Bloomab is helping an outcome measure that we care about, when in reality, it's doing nothing of the sort. This bounces me all the way back to my complaint at the beginning when I was talking about how they excluded patients who had real renal disease. If you had scary kidney disease, if you had required dialysis, if your EGFR was under 30, you didn't get into this trial, and predictably, we now don't know whether or not this would actually help people who really, really need something else added to their therapies. Safety endpoints were overall about the same between the two therapies. As per usual, disclaimer, subgroup analysis is fraught. The trial was not designed to assess these things, and they are typically underpowered, and of course, that is no exception here. About a quarter of the patients received cyclophosphamide, and in subgroup analysis, fewer of them seem to have a complete renal response. I don't know what to make of this. As I said before, these patients were not randomized to cyclophosphamide or MMF, and there's probably some selection effects here. These people probably had some signs of worse disease, and predictably, they went on to not do quite as well as people who had less refractory disease. You can't say for certain. It's impossible to really know this. I think this is in the category of statistical noise and is probably not going to influence how I use this medication. Which gets me to the ultimate question, which is, how am I going to use this medication? I think it's worth emphasizing that this did do something. The primary efficacy response was not an unreasonable outcome measure. It included proteinuria, GFR measure, and not receiving rescue therapy. Trying to prevent a patient from developing proteinuria, losing GFR, and requiring rescue therapy is certainly a laudable goal, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to fault someone who offers this to patients with lupus nephritis. At the same time, this trial was not designed to assess outcomes that matter to us. There were shenanigans over the primary outcome measure, which I ultimately don't think were nefarious, but at the same time, just tell me that in the manuscript, or tell me that in the supplemental appendix, or tell me that in the included editorial. Shenanigans aside, this primary outcome measure was not an outcome measure that assessed something that really matters to me and patients, such as in-stage renal disease or death. Very few patients progressed to that in this trial, and there were no clear differences between them and between the two groups. Like many pharmaceutical trials, this puts us in a tough spot, where we have a drug that appears to do a little bit of something that is probably beneficial for patients and costs society an enormous amount of money. In the United States, we don't really grapple with these choices. The FDA asks whether or not this worked, which it appeared to work, and then they ask whether or not it hurt anybody, which just doesn't appear to have hurt anybody, and then they give it approval, and insurance companies are essentially required to give it. Abroad, I will be very curious to see if this is adopted in a widespread fashion. You could certainly make an argument as a healthcare system that this is not necessarily a treatment that is cost-effective. I hope that was interesting, and I would love to hear your feedback on what you do with Bilimumab. Please feel free to weigh in. I'm at EB Room on Twitter. And if you like the podcast, please be sure to share it with friends. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Bye.